This sermon that I have has only one point, one point alone, and that is men and women of the Lord's army, we are under attack. Therefore, be ready. Men and women of the Lord's army, we are under attack. Therefore, be ready. Why? Because according to this writer, Warren Resby, the Christian life is not a playground. It is a battleground. The message that we have today is a battle plan that teaches us about getting ready for the attacks of the enemy. If we want to survive the attacks, there are three things that we need to know. We need to know who are our enemies, understand what are the equipment we are to put on, and what is our strategy. Before I enlisted for my national service in 1998, the movie Saving Private Ryan just came out. It was a graphic movie inspired by tr true events that happened during World War II. The story is about how four brothers uh, served in the different military campaigns and only one survived, and a unit of eight men was sent to rescue him. The movie is considered one of the greatest war films because it showed an uncom uncompromising and unfiltered reality of war. The opening scene has, was not only shocking but realistic. Soldiers do not just die, but they die so horribly fast. And body parts are shredded and blown into bits by explosion and machine guy, gun fire pouring outlet into soft flesh and bones. I appreciate the movie because it shows a close reality to what war is like. There is no glory no jubilation and triumph, just lots of unnecessary death and untold suffering. This is what war is. Neville Chamberlain, who was the British Prime Minister during World War II, who understood and tried his very best to avoid war with Germany, said this, In war, whichever side may call itself the victor, there are no winners, but we are losers. If possible, any reasonable person would choose to avoid war because war is horrific. Yet today we are currently witnessing a war that only few expected would happen. It was heartbreaking in February not only to see Ukraine fathers, husbands, brothers, sons saying goodbye to their families, and children and loved ones as they prepare for war. But now, the Russian men are also saying goodbye to their families and children because of the military draft. And many are worried about whether it will lead to another world war. And we pray and hope that the world will not be led to it because we all want peace and stability. Yet, unbeknownst to many of us, we are already at war. It is a war that is more important and costlier than all the other wars that has ever been fought combined. This is a war that not only involves the entire world, but our internal lives are at stake. 
and our enemies are different. You cannot negotiate with them. You cannot bargain with them or reason with them. They will not show you mercy or pity. They will not give you any quarter. They will take pleasure in seeing you getting hurt, experiencing suffering, losing all hope, and if possible, forsaking your God. How do I know this? Just take a look at the first two chapters of the book of Job. And we can see the enemy's wicked intent and how he operates. But the enemy has been operating covertly and in the shadows, doing his best not to be seen or noticed. Why? Why? So that when we do not know that he exists, and when we do not know that we are in a war waging against us, it will cause us not to be anticipating or expecting his attacks. As someone said, the greatest trick the devil has ever played was to convince the whole world that he does not exist. So do you believe that he exists? It was only when the Lord Jesus Christ came into the scene as the Messiah, as the Son of God, that another reality was unveiled that we had not been aware of, the spiritual realm. We read in the Gospel and the book of Acts how Satan and his servants, the demons would dare to challenge Jesus and his servants, the apostles, directly and indirectly. The spiritual realm is a greater and more significant reality than what we observe physically in this world. And the war we are in is a spiritual war. Therefore, therefore, we need to know and be prepared for the attacks of the enemy, which lead us to our first point. Who are our enemies? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And we stop there. There are three things that we need to learn about our enemies. Who they are not, who exactly they are, and what are their strategies. It is clear from Paul's word that our fight is not with flesh and blood, meaning humans, people, men and women. Yet, take a step back and reflect on how since the days of Jesus till now, Christians and yes, I mean Christians, have sometimes been guilty of treating others like enemies, both in the church and outside of the church. It is easy to caricature someone as an enemy because it justifies you to treat the person horribly and beneath you. And just by reading church history, you can see we can see how the church at times have treated fellow Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with such hate and contempt that they seem to be more of an enemy than family. And when we engage with the world, those who do not believe in God or those who hate Christians and what we believe, it doesn't give us the right to treat them as enemies. Why do you think Jesus 
commands His disciples that we ought to love our enemies. There's a way to answer and reason with them in a manner that shows that you intend, you intend to humiliate and destroy them. But there is another way, another way to answer and reason with grace, with gentleness, because it shows that you love them and that you desire that they come to know the Savior. Because this is the church mission and all who follow Christ, to make disciples of all nations, not to fight and destroy the nations. And so when we think of other men and women as our enemies, our natural instinct is to attack and destroy them. So why do we do this? Because we have fallen into one of Satan's plans to deflect attention and focus, deflect of his attention upon him and his focus upon him about his presence and activities on us. The quote from William Temple, an English Anglican priest, sums it up all well. We, meaning Christians, are called to the hardest of all tasks, to fight without hatred, to resist without bitterness, and in the end, if God grants it so, to triumph without vindictiveness. Why? Because our fight is not with flesh and blood. We are here to participate with God in His mission to rescue others from darkness and bring them to Jesus, the light of salvation. So who are we to fight? Who is our real enemy? Paul continues in verse 12. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul deliberately expands and explains who our enemy is. It is without a doubt that the enemy is the devil. He is the representation of the enemy when we think of him, think of our spiritual enemy. But he is not alone. There are others with him, other powerful demons and spiritual forces like him. The devil, unlike God, is limited as all other created things. He is still a creature. He cannot be omnipresent like God, but he has others to serve with him. Some of these spiritual powers have been used to describe demonic spirits in other passages in the Gospels and the Epistles, but others are unique, appearing here for the very first time. The question is, are these demonic spiritual powers that Paul described, that he refers to, are only spiritual forces in the spiritual fear, hence their spiritual activities are limited to demonic possessions and temptations? Or are they residing in society, human construct, structures and organizations like temples, like empires, in government systems, creating laws and influencing culture and imposing values that are against God's word? The answer is yes, both. We have seen in the Gospel and the book of Acts of the demonic activities of the devil and his servants. At the same time, we have also seen how the devil can influence leaders to tempt them to do what is wrong and wicked like Judas 
and other leaders to twist and corrupt Jewish religious system and Roman judicial system so that they can end up condemning an innocent man and not just innocent, the Son of God. There is no place that the devil and his spiritual forces will not go in order to do his will. In the war in Afghanistan in 1991 to 2021, when the U.S. forces invaded and successfully occupied the territory, the Taliban insurgencies knew that they could not fight directly with the U.S. military. They had to adjust their tactics and fight an asymmetric war with no planes, helicopters, tanks and heavy artillery. The insurgents resorted to terrorist attacks in order to fight a psychological war with a more advanced and well-equipped army. It was a war of attrition to demoralize and outlast the army, the enemy. Rules of war do not apply to them. Not only suicide bombers were used, but civilians were forced to become living bombs to inflict damage. And women and children became human shields for them. There is little they would do, they would not do, in order to kill their enemies. As for our enemies, do you know that they are worse than these human insurgents? If they would harm and demonically possess a young child, as we read in Mark chapter 9, and demand children to be human sacrifices as a form of idolatrous worship in the Old Testament, what makes us think the devil and his demons will restrain themselves? Therefore, we need to know what are their strategies. In, in chapter 6, Paul tells us that we need to put on the whole armour of God, that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 11. There are a few things that we can learn about their strategies. One, they are on attack. The enemy is on the attack and we are on the defence. In the classical defence strategy, our part is basically to be ready and to wait. That's all we can do. We have no idea when and where the enemy will attack. But what we can be sure is that the enemy will attack when and where we are the weakest. He will probe and test and do a detailed study of you, of me. What are our habits? What are our lifestyle? what are our weakness and temptations, and know how best to attack. When I was in the army training, one of the lessons we had to learn was how to set up a defence. And an important part of defence was to learn how to dig a trench. And all the guys who have gone through say, okay, we know, it's not nice. And so for the ladies, a trench is basically a hole in the ground that is deep and long enough for two people to occupy. And you need to deep, dig deep enough so that you can hide entirely from enemy fire and yet minimally expose yourself, you need to return fire. And every trench must be as deep as to the tallest person. Now, my officer, who had a weird sense of humour, assigned me with a tall guy. So, after I finished digging, there's enough height, I still had to continue digging because of my buddy there, who is tall. There's no need to stand up. Yeah. And so throughout the night, we would dig, 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 dig. 
and we will be so tired and we'll be so sleepy and just when we are so happy so proud at the moment we have finished our defense structure and our trench it is not time to sit back relax crack open a, a, a beer or drink coffee no now is to get ready for the enemy to attack we can't rest and relax and our officers who are pretending to be the enemy will go around us they purposely made sure that we will finish digging our trench during the early morning. And the early morning, we are so tired and sleepy. And at dawn, while everyone is supposed to be alert and awake, you can hear <laughs> the sleeping, a choir of snoring around all of us. And the command and the officers will go around sneakily like Pink Panther, picking up all the different weapons. And then after they finish, they've done that, they will do an alert they will do a, 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 a stimulate a, a, an attack and have things exploding, guns fire here and there, and all of us, everything's all lost and we get into trouble because no weapons, we're not ready, we're all still sleeping. The lesson was to basically teach us that we must be always, always ready for an attack. So for us too. One of the things that I've, I know for myself personally, I will share with pastorally that it is usually at night when I'm the most, I'm the weakest. When I'm very tired, that there is where I am most tempted. And I need to know and be aware of myself and do part, do something about it constructively to prevent myself to falling into temptation. How about you? Do you know your weakness? Because the devil knows yours. The schemes of the devil are deceit through human means. In the earlier chapter, verse, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 14, Paul writes, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Deceit will be a primary weapon, but not the only weapon. He will use our ignorance of God and His Word to deceive us. He will even use religious doctrine, language, teaching, to trap us into having wrong ideas about God and our faith. Instead of salvation in Christ, it will be salvation through our own works. Instead of trusting in Jesus, we'll be trusting in ourselves. In the book, Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices, Thomas Brooks, who is a Puritan who wrote this in the 1600s, wrote about Satan devices. And one of the many devices that he has, he uses deception called to present the bait and hide the hook. Allow me to read. Satan first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup and hide the poison. To present the sweet, the pleasure and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and to hide from the soul the wrath, the misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this device, he deceived our first parents. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes will shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Yes, your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, here is the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, the profit. But oh, how he hides the hook, the shame, the wrath, 
and the loss that will certainly follow. There is an opening of the eyes of the mind to contemplation and joy. And there is the opening of the eyes of the body to shame and confusion. He promises them the former, but intends the latter. And so Satan cheats them, giving them a fruit in exchange for a paradise. And he deals by a thousand nowadays, Satan with ease, pawns, falsehood upon us by his golden baits. And then he leads us and leaves us into fool's paradise. He promises the soul honor, pleasure, profit, but pays the soul with the greatest contempt, shame, and loss that can be. By a golden bait, he labored to catch Christ. I end quote. Therefore, we must be alert and aware of his many devices of attack. The third thing is that the armor of God actually gives us important, important clues where he will attack. Truth, righteousness, ready for the gospel, faith, salvation, sword of the spirit. If these are the armor that we need to put on, then it should inform us that this is where he will attack. I will briefly mention a few. Instead of righteousness of Christ, we will be seduced by the devil into creating our own righteousness that is either solely based on good works or a combination of Jesus and our works. Either way, our works will be part of our righteousness and it will be corrupted because Jesus is not sufficient. It will then become self-righteousness when we compare with others. It will cause us to despise them because, despise and look down upon them because they cannot meet up to our standards. And when we look to God, we dare to demand an answer from God because He owes us for being good. In terms of sharing the gospel, now that we are saved by the blood of Christ, we have this new holy desire to follow and to serve Him. It will soon be replaced with comfort and inertia. The devil will convince us that we don't need to be ready. We don't need to be active in sharing the gospel. And our lives don't really matter. We don't need to have a good testimony of the gospel to, uh, so that others can see. Let others serve while we rest and enjoy. Comfort and pleasure will be our priority. Or when regards to our faith, our faith in God will be sorely questioned. The things that are happening around us do not reflect what we read in Scripture. Pain, suffering, disappointment will cause us to question God and to doubt Him and if possible, to abandon our faith in Christ. And when we see the blessing and the provision, well, I mean, when, well, where are the blessing, the provision and blessings and the protection that God promised in His Word? And yet those who deny Jesus, those who don't believe in God, are enjoying that. Their lives are filled with plenty, with riches and no suffering. So God is a liar and His Word is not true. These are just some of the ways in which how the devil will attack us. That is why we need to put on the whole armour of God. For without it, we surely will fall and be defeated. And that's why it is important for us to be well acquainted with the equipment that God is providing us for battle. And from verse 13 to 17, we see the whole armour that Paul talks about. And we know that Paul 
very likely in his contemporary time, was refer referring to the whole Roman armour. And the whole armour here is actually referring to an heavy armour of the Roman soldier itself. When I was a regular in the army, when I say regular, not size, uh, means I sign on. Yeah, there are other people's different size, but we're all regulars, those who sign on. I had the opportunity to volunteer, and I clear this, again, I can share this, as part of the UN Peacekeeping Task Force that our Singapore Army was forming. We would be stationed in East Timor to help protect the local people. As I was in armour, meaning tanks and armoured infantry vehicles, we had to, to train how to fight operationally. So what was exciting about this is that I had to learn how to um, train as if we were going to war. And there were additional information and equipment that I had not been um, uh, familiar with. So quite a while, we were just spending being familiar, uh, understanding the, the equipment, the weapons, the armour, how to operate them, how to repair, how to replace, uh, how to maintain them. We also had to learn how to use the weapon system in, that was modified for that particular mission itself. All this was for us as if we were going to war. But in the end, I did not, partic in the end, I did not participate because the terrain in East Timor was not suited for heavy armoured vehicles. But I learned the important lesson that if you want to survive in a fight, you need to know your equipment thoroughly. You need to know the whole armour of God. This armour is from God and it is He who provides it. And we are commanded to put on His armour upon us in this war against the demon and the devils. But unlike Saul's armour, King Saul, Saul once told David to put on his armour, but it was ill-fitting and unsuitable because David, for David because it was not made for him. David had not even tested it out, meaning he had not trained with it he was not familiar with it. Instead of helping and protecting him, Saul's armour was going to be cumbersome, heavy, and get David killed with his battle with Goliath. But for us, we can put on this armour because of what Jesus has done. In the previous chapter, Paul uses the same verb, put on, to teach that in Jesus, we can now put on this new self that has been created for us after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This means this armour is also our new self that we put on, that has been created specially for us as a new creation in Jesus Christ. This whole armour will fit in on us perfectly. And because it is God's armour, it is capable to, capable to withstand the attacks of the evil one. And as each piece of the armour begins with God, it is God's truth, His righteousness, His gospel, His faithfulness, His work of salvation and His word that is the primary source of the armour. It will also mean that as we wear this armour, the different attributes of God will also transform us. It will affect us. The truth of God will teach us to be people of integrity and truthfulness. The righteousness of God will teach us to be people of righteousness when we deal with people. The readiness of the gospel will teach us to be ready to share the gospel of Jesus Christ when there's an opportunity. The faith of God will teach us that because of God's faithfulness, we can have firm trust in God even when the devil throws us everything, uh, throws everything at us. 
The salvation of God tells gives us the ultimate assurance that we are safe eternally, even in the midst of the battle and even when we are wounded. And the Word of God teaches us about the power and certainty of His Word, that we live by the Word of God and not by bread, and certainly not by other values. But the armour must be put on completely and daily. In the middle of war, you cannot choose not to put on the whole armour when you go into battle, for you shall surely fall. Now that we know who are our enemies, how he will attack us, what is the armour that God has provided for us, it comes to our last point. What is the strategy? What is the strategy that God has laid out for us? In verse 10, God says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armour of God. And in verse 13, He says, Take up the whole armour that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. And verse 18, Praying at all times in the Spirit. To know that there is already a strategy brings relief to us because we do not need to worry about formulating one for ourselves to ensure success. All we need to do is obey and follow after God's plan. And there are four parts in this strategy. To be strong, to put on the whole armour, to stand firm and to pray. Paul tells us there are two ways to be strong in the Lord. First, to be strong in the Lord means to be absolutely dependent upon the Lord. This rids us of our self-reliance on our own strength and our abilities. And it is a strength that only Jesus can give. And, can, and it will be a strength that only be given when we are in Christ. The key is relationship with Jesus. When you are in Jesus, when your relationship with Jesus is real and living, He is the one who will give you His power and might. Our part is just to remain in Him. And this power was already described in our reading early on by Elder Melping about how it is the power that can even raise Jesus from the grave. It is the same power that resides in us. The second way to have this power is to put on the whole armour of God, which is connected to the second point. Putting on the new self that Christ has given to us daily as we wake up every morning to consciously put on God's truth put on God's righteousness, put on God's gospel, God's faithfulness, God's salvation, and God's word. Put these on and you will be safe and you will be strong. Because our enemy is the devil and his demons, only the armour of God can withstand. You see, if you are not wearing God's armour, inevitably, you will be wearing your own armour that you create. But our armour is weak, frail and crumbling. Our kind of truth, righteousness and faith is feeble and frail. The, whatever the enemy throws at us will, be, will so easily penetrate and defeat us like an arrow piercing through paper. So we have to put on the whole armour daily and it has to be God's armour. And even though it is about the individual wearing armour, the context of the epistle of Ephesians tells us it is about God's collective redeemed people. We are not fighting alone, but fighting together alongside with each other, holding up our shields, not just to protect ourselves, but for the fellow brother and sister next to us, protecting and guarding against the enemy's attack. 
The third strategy is the third part of the strategy is to stand firm. As mentioned, we are not on the attack. Our part is to stand firm against the attack of the evil one and his demons. Military experts will tell you that you cannot win the war just by defending yourself. You have to attack. And as we have read recently how the Ukrainians had a successful counter-attack and managed to take back 6,000 square kilometers of land, this is how they were going to win the war. But we do not have to attack. Why? Because Jesus, our Lord, has already achieved victory in this war. We know the end and the outcome. We don't have to attack. We, our part is just to stand and stand firm confidently upon God with the armour together till Jesus returns. And the last is to pray. Even though prayer is not a part of the armour, yet it is, the, it is in the posture of prayer that we wear God's armour and stand firm. If you read in verse 18, if you see praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all all the saints. The adjective all is repeated, tells us that prayer is constant, it's all the time, and you don't stop with all perseverance, with all kinds of prayer for all the saints. It displays our dependence upon God and our trust in Him. It reflects our alertness and watchfulness upon the enemy. It is a prayer to show that we trust in Jesus and He will give us strength against the devil and the demons, and we will not be overcome. As I bring the message to a conclusion, let me summarize the main points that we have learned from Ephesians 6, 10 to 12 to 20. We know who our enemies are and what are their strategies. We know why we need to be acquainted with our armor and what is the strategy that God has for us. And the most wonderful thing to know is that the war has already won. Christ is victorious. You know, this is not the first time that we read of the armor of God. In Isaiah chapter 59, I will read for you, we see that God is wearing his armor. Isaiah writes in verse 17, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. God was wearing his armor because he was seeking to fight injustice and defeating his enemies. And 700 years later, after Isaiah, God will once again fight and defeat his enemy decisively. But this time it will be different. This time his armor that he bears upon himself will allow his enemy to hurt him and ultimately kill him. He will experience shame, defeat at the hands of his enemies but it will ultimately save his people at the cost of his life. You see, the armor of God does not protect you from suffering. The armor of God does not cause you to be invulnerable and impervious to sin or temptation or how you will never taste death. No. Rather, putting on the armor of God affirms that you are part of God's army that Christ is your commander and that we, we are even prepared to suffer and die for our Lord. 
And, and if that day comes so, we know that one day we will share in the victory of Christ, where there will be love, there will be joy, and true glory. And therefore, till the day that Jesus returns victoriously and the war is now over, what should our attitudes be? Let the pledge of Martin Tripto inspire us to have our pledge for Christ. Handwritten under the heading, My Pledge, the above words were written in the fly leaf of Private Tripto's personal diary found on his body at the time of his death. On July 29, 1918, he had fought in World War I. He had served in the 42nd Rainbow Division as a runner, where he died delivering a message between battalions in the Battle of Orc River in France. And this was his pledge. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure, I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. But this can be our pledge too. Our pledge will be like this. Christ will win this war. Therefore, I will work. I will save. I will sacrifice. I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. Let us pray. Father, as we end this series on prayer, we are solemnly and soberly reminded that we are under attack and our enemy is strong and we cannot defeat him. But you can. And our hope is in you. And help us, Father, to be aware of the evil one and his activities and work to seek to destroy not just only our own relationship with one another, but our own very lives and our trust in you. To protect us and protect our church, help us to be that army that Christ has died for and help us to march triumphantly with, with joy, with love and with passion as we seek to rescue others to come to know the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's in whose name we pray, amen.